here on The Upper Room with Joe Kelly. We are featuring the Minneapolis Music Special. And uh, one of the guys I've wanted to talk with for, for quite a long while. And finally, tonight's the night. He is a multifaceted musician, keyboardist, writer, producer. He's worked with the group Next, Ronnie Lowe, Georgia, Greasy Meal, Sons of Almighty, Esther Godinez, and Prince and the New Power Generation. And without further delay, we're going to welcome to the Upper Room with Joe Kelly, Mr. Tommy Barbarella. How you doing, Tommy? I'm great. Thanks, Joe. So uh, you, you're quite busy. I, I know that was just a just a small portion of uh, what you've been working on, but uh, th- things are going pretty well out in the Twin Cities for you? Things are things are cool. Um, every, everyone seems to ask me why I'm still here and why I haven't moved somewhere else like right well, like it's better elsewhere right but i do love it here um you know there's a few other pretty successful producers and musicians who have stayed here i think we all know who they are well you're originally from uh minnesota right yeah I'm from yeah. st paul so mm-hmm. it is home too and i have a lot of family here and uh you got great studios out there in your own home studio so you know it's cool you're staying staying where you grew up I love it. I'd like. I wouldn't mind living somewhere else for a while too, but I'll, I'll probably always come back here as well. Okay, where where would you want to go, or where do you got your eyes on checking out? Well, there's a couple places. You know, I've always loved London, and I wouldn't mind hanging there for a while. I also love Northern California. Mm-hmm. Love the Bay Area, um, but now after spending a couple months over in Italy for the second time, I don't know. Love Italy as well, so. And There's a few places I wouldn't mind being. So you went over to Europe and Italy uh, with, uh, I believe her name is Georgia, right? Right, singer is Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, very popular, great singer. In, in, and um, it was a great band. It was most of the New Power Generation, myself, Michael Bland, Sonny T, and... Um, Jeff Lee Johnson on guitar, who worked with us on the Sons of Almighty project. And it was just the four of us, and um, we had a lot of fun. So, so when you get together with, with guys you perform with a long time and then work with someone who's kind of out of what you're uh, usually working with, prep, preparing for that, uh, what does it take to get the songs down pat? Well, this was actually so easy because Sonny and Michael have worked with her the last several years on and off um, so they know they know her they know the book and I actually worked I went over there for a month a year ago so I got a taste of it as well so and then Jeff we've all worked with having all worked together and then um, most of us knowing the material it was so easy and because we all come from the same school this old school funk thing it's just it was unspoken it was like michael would just look at me and i'd go oh yeah we'll mm-hmm. do that don't even have to say it so it was really a pleasure for everybody we all made each other's jobs a lot easier and um and had a lot of fun doing it do you have any favorite rooms out out in europe that you played on this last tour uh, <laughs> there's a few i wouldn't want to go back to <laughs> i don't know it was it was kind of different because um, this time we went up into Germany and Switzerland. We um, we actually had a really cool show in London at the Jazz Cafe. 
and uh, so she's she's trying to um, broaden her base. Uh, these were places she hadn't ever performed before, so we did more smaller clubs, which was which was fun in a lot of ways too. But I, you know, I don't even remember where we played to be honest. I remember the cities, but that's about it. So, so when you're traveling over there, getting getting the gear, um, they did they hook you up pretty good, or what? What were you traveling with keyboard wise? It was pretty basic. No, it, it wasn't. It's not a big production tour, so it was it was pretty basic, um, pretty bare bones. But mm-hmm. uh, we made it sound big. And uh, have you worked on some studio stuff with Georgia? Uh, very little bit. The last record uh, that she did was produced by Michael Baker, who is, uh, you might know him, he's a drummer, musical director from Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. He's actually also from here at Minneapolis, which is kind of how the whole the whole hookup with all of us got started. Um, he produced her last record, and I actually ended up on one of the songs um, when we were, when I was over there last December playing on it, so Michael, Michael Baker brought me in play on that and ironically that was the first time him and I had ever met and uh strange because we live in the same city and we're both musicians and but he's always touring so much that um just never worked out so did did he play in Jesse Johnson's band at one point no that's another Michael Baker who's a guitar player okay gotcha So this is a, a drummer who this this guy's he's played with Weather Report, um, a lot of heavy jazz cats. Okay. Well, out out in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the the music scene's still going pretty strong, right? It is, yeah. but like I was telling you earlier, I'm not playing so much. Um, the club scene is so tough here. It's I think it's kind of a trend everywhere right now where uh, these cover bands. Not that there's anything wrong with cover bands, but it's kind of cheesy theme bands that do all disco stuff or whatever. They're the big draw right now. And actually, in, in here in Minneapolis, since since Greasy Meal, there hasn't been a big kind of big thing like that since that. But you know, there's always these things popping up here and there. What do you think was so special about? Uh greasy meal and the following that uh, you had on Sunday nights a, a night that doesn't really pack people into a club and you guys filled it up every every Sunday yeah it it's, you know everything about it didn't make sense you know the Sunday night thing the big band with eight people you know that's you just don't hear that anymore and um and it was a super group really it was you know just all some of the best players in Minneapolis and I, you know, it's hard to explain because it was just one of those things where everything clicked and everything lined up. It was the right time. You know, we were all we were all weaned on '70s funk and '70s pop culture, and I wasn't even in the band when they first started. I went down to see them when their first shows, and they they played a bunch of '70s TV show themes and put them into a medley. Fat Albert, Sanford and the Sun, and I was just like, oh my God, this is brilliant, because this was like 96, and the whole 70s retro thing was really starting to kick in at that time, and um, 
I was like, this is brilliant. This is this is brilliant. You know, it's going to be huge. And and it was. And then we did started doing originals that captured the essence of the covers that we had chosen to do. And, um, and then eventually it became became an all original show that still still maintained um, the the flavor of the covers that we had been doing, like there's Wind and Fire, the the Hollow Notes, the Bill Withers. You know, at the time it was they were kind of strange choices for covers that no one around here anyway had been doing. Um, but it was kind of strange too because one of the stigmas that we couldn't seem to shake was that we were a 70s cover band because it started out that way even though two years later we had two original records out the whole show was original um, people still thought of us that way which, which kind of hurt you know there's also a stigma of being a bar band when you do play every week or regularly it's not as special you know to, it doesn't seem that way to people to record labels or whoever like, oh, they're that bar band that plays on Sunday nights. Wow. Every town has a great bar band that plays once a week. Mm -hmm. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you that I never had the uh, chance to see a play live, um, but my wife did, and she went to see in the Montreal Jazz Festival when you played out there. Huh. And uh, she, she was blown, blown away by by the, the performance out there, playing under the rain, right? Yeah. Yeah. It started raining. So, uh, Greasy Meal, of course, he's still keeping in contact with some of the fellas? Yeah, and in fact, that was something else we didn't talk about. It was, um, I don't know if you knew about the group The Fuzz. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was um, the project Julius and Brian, the singer and sax player from Greasy Meal, put together um, about a year and a half ago. And I, I was involved in that and helping them record the record and then... Uh, play several ill-fated shows. <laughs> Why were they ill-fated? Well, the record is brilliant. I'm very proud of my work on that, and I think the songwriting is great. It was a little different vibe than Greasy Meal in that it was it was more of a soft rock, 70s soft rock thing, like kind of like a Lenny Kravitz, but a little softer, like America, uh, the group America, or... Uh, I, I don't know, and uh, we tried to do the Sunday night thing again, and it was a different venue, and it just never took off. Mm -hmm. People were wanting to hear a greasy meal, and it wasn't. It was different, and I don't know. It just, like I said, it, it, it was so much the timing with Greasy. It was just, it was the timing thing that uh, stars aligned and all that. But. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been busy um, writing and, and producing, and uh, one of the artists, a uh, young guy, uh, Mason, you uh, wrote a track called Goody Line, and uh, how did that come about, the collaboration with Mason? Well, Mason had been doing some songs with Michael Bland, and um, Michael had mentioned and told me about him, but Mason just called me and um, wanted, to, wanted to work with me, wanted to do a track, and he was very, he was very focused on what he wanted and how he wanted it to sound. Um, he had been listening to a lot of Daft Punk at the time, and 
it came together really easily and uh, Mason's a great great guy he's great to work with um, great attitude and he actually just, I heard from him last night he just called me he moved out to LA mm-hmm. how's things going out there um, he's doing really well he's uh, putting a band together out there and he's got some showcases coming up does he got his uh, his two step st- song together? I know he was telling me about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, he's he's always on top of the latest mm-hmm. latest things, which is cool. I like working with younger younger artists who who tell me what's happening in the clubs in Paris. <laughs> right. So we're gonna uh, check out that track right now. Uh, Tommy Barbarella writing for and producing for Mason. And uh, this is called The Goody Line from Mason's CD, Audio Therapy versus Designer Drugs. And uh, my special guest is Tommy Barbarella. And we'll come back more, talk with uh, Tommy about uh, his days with Prince and the New Power Generation and uh, some of the other stuff he's been doing out in Minneapolis, uh, writing commercial music and, and so many other things. But first, this is Mason and Tommy Barbarella with Goody Line. And that is Mason with Goody Line, written by Mr. Tommy Barbarella. And Tommy is my special guest here on the Minneapolis Music Special. And uh, Tommy, there's there's a fantastic uh, new bass player on that one, right? Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Michael B. Uh, right. Funking it up on that one. How, how about yourself? I mean, you're noted for playing keyboards. Do you, do you dabble with some other stuff? Yeah, I've been dabbling. I've been doing a lot of dabbling lately, playing a lot more guitar and bass. Mm-hmm. Um, on my stuff just because with the uh, assistance of Pro Tools and electronic <laughs> wizardry it's, it's a lot easier to do it you can uh, if you can play a little bit you can make it work so, so, so yeah it's been a lot of fun it helps out too but still it doesn't compare to get to bring a sunny tea over here <laughs> right. a real player so, so if you had a a big budget, and you could uh, add a few things to that home studio. You have any uh, few few uh, gear in mind? Hmm. Wow. Really, the only I, I my studio is so happy with it. The only thing I would, would do really, only thing I could do to take it up a notch is just to move it into a, a bigger space where I have some live rooms. Mm-hmm. Because um, I don't really have a live room to record to record great drums or um, some kind of live session like that. So do you record um, differently than the days at Paisley Park with Prince or you take a, a few of the stuff over there, you know, work-wise and, and working into your own studio? How, how do you record mostly? From a technical aspect? Yeah. So, well, it's all different now because it's all, it's all Pro Tools. It's all on hard disk. and. Mm-hmm. You know, back then it was, we everything was, was still going to tape. Um, so it's it's totally different. And um, like I said, the editing capabilities now are are just ridiculously amazing. Where I can play a guitar part and slice it and dice it, and I can end up sounding like Prince. Right. <laughs> Even though it didn't go down that way. So. Um, some call it cheating. Right. <laughs> I call it good editing. <laughs> no, it's pretty different. I mean, it's uh, it's cool in, in a lot of ways, but in some ways it's, you can get lost 
can get lost in the digital world of micro-editing. Um, we talk about <laughs> like newer Steely Dan records and whatnot being pro-tooled to death. You can pro tools the life out of something, you know. And you listen back to, to older stuff, it's not perfect, you know. And it's so easy. It's so tempting to make everything perfect in, um, in digital recording because you can. But, you know, we know that the imperfections are what gives, give the track the character. Yeah. You gotta leave them in sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So, so a lot of people uh, know the background of yourself uh, with Prince and the New Power Generation, but if, if you could give us a synopsis about how you first came in contact with Prince and, and got into the band, the New Power Generation, go for it there. Um, well, I had been playing around Minneapolis for a few years with, uh, with various bands, and in the, it's like 88, 89... I was playing with uh, the Steele family, who've also done a lot of work with Prince. And um, we were, me and Sonny were in that band, and we were playing pretty regularly with them. They were a big draw to a particular club in Minneapolis. And Prince would often come down to hear us because it was kind of the hot, whenever we were playing, it was the hot thing to do. And he'd come down there with Kim Bassinger. And, uh, he saw me playing with them, and uh, I think he came down because Sonny was playing with them, to be honest. But he, he first saw me playing with them, and uh, it was it was kind of strange because I just people kept started talking, and everyone kept putting this bug in my ear that he wants you in his band, and he's been asking about you and asking all these questions. He's asking all his deals about me, but it went on for months, and I never heard anything. I started getting sick of it. It's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> But then, um, and I got called to uh, to go out and rehearse with a project he was doing for Margaret Cox called MC Flash, a record that never never came out, I guess. But uh, we were rehearsing to go on tour with with him, opening for the Nude tour in '90, and did that. Um, and actually, we didn't end up going out on tour, touring that with that project. We ended up being Mavis Staples' backup band and uh, opening for about a month of shows on that tour. So that was the, uh, got my foot in the door. And then, um, oh yeah, that's what I was talking about, Diamonds and Pearls. Uh, we were doing a Flash rehearsal, or a Mavis rehearsal, one or the other, I think it was Flash. And he asked me and Sonny and Mike to stay behind and come in the studio with him to help him finish this song and it was this sounded like a Christmas song the bridge and uh, I hauled all my shitty little keyboards in there and uh, we ended up cutting the song and helping him finish arranging it and it turned out to be Diamonds and Pearls and uh, so that was one of the first songs cut with that record and that was before I was even in his band or anything and uh, that was pretty exciting and um, actually very proud of, of that song and what we did with him on that song that's yeah, um, a great record uh, as a whole too yeah, yeah. As, that's, that's the one from our tenure there is the new power generation that's the one that really seems to have 
stand the test of time well and the one people everyone kind of likes across the board do you have a, a favorite tour uh, when you tour with Prince that was a great tour actually the most exciting time was the tour we didn't do was because we didn't do the Diamonds and Pearls tour until like a year after the record came out and it was in Europe we'd never toured the States but that summer um, after that record came out we did a lot of shows around the country um, like Jack the Rapper in Atlanta and we did Arsenio and MTV Music Awards and that was that was a really exciting time because it was kind of um, at the time it was seen as Prince's comeback you know after Batman and Graffiti Bridge um, it kind of it kind of slowed in sales or popularity whatever but they did a big media blitz and we did all all the shows and uh, it was just a really exciting time because so many people in the States hadn't seen him he hadn't performed for I don't know three or four years in the States so it was really exciting and then like on the Diamonds and Pearls tour we went to Australia and he had never been there and um, that was really exciting too because he had a hit record number one songs and uh, playing a country where he'd never been so they went they, people went crazy it felt like the Beatles you know how about the uh, the keyboards that you brought on on various tours did it change over the years with Prince the setup that you had on, on stage it it did change um, one thing that definitely changed was like <laughs> got bigger hard drives as the, you know, samples, things got more sample heavy. Um, and then later, I don't know, we, we were always upgrading with those latest things that came out, but, you know, later when the band got scaled down to just the quartet, um, the Wurlitzer made the comeback, and that became kind of my main act. Morris was on Oregon. I was on the Whirly, and um, I'll never forget that Whirly. I had a pedal board that would put most guitar players to shame. I had at one point I counted the pedals, and there were there were over thirty. Wow! It was just ridiculous. I had a pedal board identical to Prince's for his guitar rig, plus a bunch of other stuff. So a lot so, of pedals. <laughs> so so when you decide. You know who's going to handle what keyboard between yourself and Morris? How how does that come about? At that time, it was it was pretty. Uh, after a while, it became pretty easy, and we we knew what we were going to take. He mm -hmm. obviously took the organ stuff. I took the more piano based parts. He handled the vocal samples. I handled all the other samples. Um, and then, as far as other keyboard sounds, that was. That's the only stuff we really have to talk about. But we doubled up on a lot of stuff, too, just to make it bigger. And we're going to listen to uh, a track right now, which Tommy uh, spoke about, how it developed on the Diamonds and Pearls CD from Prince and the New Power Generation. This is the title track featuring the work of Mr. Tommy Barbarella. We'll be back. We're going to talk more with uh, Tommy about some upcoming projects and what's been going on out in the Twin Cities. This is Diamonds and Pearls by Prince and the New Power Generation. And that's Magic in the Studio. You heard uh, the story on how that song developed from 
Tommy Barbarella and Prince and the New Power Generation, Diamonds and Pearls. And uh, I want to thank Tommy Barbarella for stopping by the Upper Room on this uh, afternoon, evening. So uh, you're, you're always welcome to come by. I know you're swinging by East a uh, few weeks, right? Yeah, I should be out there in uh, mid-March. You got have a vacation or, or some working projects? Uh, it's going to be a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. It's uh, girlfriends out there for a couple weeks. Okay. It's on a seminar thing, and I'm going to go out and hang with her and take some meetings and hook up with some friends, and you know. That that's cool. I saw I saw another uh, keyboard genius in concert a couple weeks ago out there, Bernie Worrell. Oh yeah. Yeah. So actually, Bernie's um been in the studio on my show, brought his keyboards and jammed for a little bit. <laughs> so yeah, it's a trip. Cool. Yeah, Bernie's cool. So so as as uh, a keyboard. Who, who's influenced you today? Where are you listening to a lot of keyboardists still or making your own magic? Well, it's funny. I was just talking about this the other night, how I was more influenced by other uh, non-keyboard players than keyboard players. I mean, obviously, I listen to keyboard players, but I think my biggest influence, we were talking about Chick Corea earlier and how I used to, I used to listen to a lot of Chick Corea and play his stuff and when I was in high school and was really into that. But um, as I got older and, and got more into rhythm and blues and soul music, um, I found that a lot of the jazz and the heavy fusion stuff I just couldn't relate to anymore. It just didn't speak to me. Um, and I ended up being more influenced keyboard-wise by people like Joe Sample, um, uh, George Duke then because they were they were saying something that I could relate to or it's like I could say that you know Ricky Peterson of course was oh yeah uh, one of my early idols here in town you know you know but of course there's there's big ones like Herbie and, and Chick and McCoy but uh, as far as the non-keyboard players I just found myself drawn more to singers, sax players, and guitar players as far as speaking, you know, being able to speak your voice with your instrument. Um, you know, I have a lot more records by Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye than any keyboard players. Um, and even like Carlos Santana, you know, he moved me. And you know, pop sax player like, or whatever you want to call him, like David Sanborn, um, moves me a lot. And it was funny, I don't know, when I was on the tour with, with Sonny um, back in November, December, he, he made a comment like that, how he's like, I just love the way you play, Tommy, because you don't play things like a keyboard player, you, you, you play things like a guitar player on keyboard. So, I don't know. I think that's something that makes me sound a little different. I was never able to transcribe a Jeff Lorber solo or a Herbie solo note for note, or I didn't have the patience to do that. So I would, uh, I would just do my own thing. <laughs> Another uh, big part of what you've been involved with uh, in Minneapolis is, is uh, being a top-rate studio musician and also uh, doing a lot of commercial music, right? Yeah, I've been uh, doing work at this company called Ashton Spencer Music here in Minneapolis for the last 
four years, I think, um, doing a lot of it's all national um, TV commercials. And everyone's was like, well, what have you played that I've, what did you write that I've heard? And I can never think of anything, but we've done a lot of stuff for, I always say, all the beers and all the cars. Right. Bob, uh, Volvo, Miller. Um, I did a big Nike spot that I remember aired before the Star Wars, when Star Wars went back in the theaters. Um I don't know, just a ton of stuff, but that's kind of been a a nice a nice gig that uh you know pays the bills. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, we actually also have recently branched out to doing movie scores. We scored a new movie called Monsters Ball mm-hmm. with uh, Halle Berry and Billy Bob Thornton. So, so so getting into the mindset and, and being creative. Uh, writing the, the, the film score and the music for that. Do you, do you watch the film prior to it or just get a, a little feel on what the scene's going to be about? Well, to get to get the gig, you um, you can't, there's nothing to see yet. And we all read the script. Read the script before, and then we just started writing music, trying to get the gig. And then, um, then you get a cut and you write to the cut. But mm-hmm. uh, I... I to be honest, I didn't do a whole lot of work on that on that project, but uh, there's another one coming up that I'm probably more involved in. So it, it's a different mindset, but it's writing the movie stuff is uh, a little more fun than the 30-second TV spots where it's always 30 seconds. Right. And you're, you're also involved for some upcoming projects and, and recordings, and we're going to uh, listen to uh, some of the music a little later on. Um, what, are, what are some things on tap for you, Tommy? Um, as a player, there's a CD coming out by our second CD, a group called Movable Feast that I work with. Um, the second CD, very proud of it. Recorded a lot of it here in my studio. Um, Local Minneapolis original electric jazz group, very high energy. Um, I'm also producing a record for sax player named Ronnie Lowe, who is in the David Sanborn vein, kind of funky jazz, um, writing most of that material as well. Um, You mentioned Esther. Esther Godinez uh, did the song with her talked about doing a whole project don't know what's going to become of that but um i think she has a live album coming out right 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 they did a live thing here um what else i have a couple songs coming out on a new artist named yohani from miami and that's coming out in mid uh in a couple weeks march um her name is yohani that's one of the songs i think i sent to you okay uh, not her singing it's a it's another singer mm-hmm. but it's one of the songs what else uh, there's a, a young kid here in town named Ryan Listman who is going to be producing some songs for um, like 18 great young um, reggae styled singer and 
very excited about him. Great singer-songwriter. And who else? Bunch of new artists coming out. M. Spivey um, definitely will be coming out this year. Uh, and that's one of the songs I sent you. Um, girl named Joya. I'm doing a lot of work on her new record. She's uh, 17. She's from here. Um, Joe Sensor's daughter. He was a football player for the Vikings. Okay. And uh, so... So, so fingers in a lot of things. So, so I guess there there is reason why you're probably not going to be able to do a lot of a lot of touring with with all that. Yeah, that's just it. It's like I find that I get bored easily now. I want to be more in control and be doing things. Mm-hmm. And when you're on tour, it's there's a lot of downtime, and it's harder to get other things done. I've become uh, the king of multitasking. So. <laughs> So, so uh, let, let's settle it right now. Out of Greasy Meal, I know uh, you're a big physical fitness buff. Who is the best uh, inline skater? You or Dave Anania? <laughs> um, I think I'm by far the best inline skater. Uh huh. I, I have the most style for sure. You still keep in good shape? Yeah, I'm not. I was doing a lot of the, the long bike rides, the Ironmans and the 100-mile rides. But, wow. Um, I've slipped a little bit, but I'm still doing yoga and, uh, you know, doing the best I can. <laughs> and uh, our listeners out there, if they wanted to, uh, there's a few few sites you can uh, check out the work of uh, Tommy Barbarella. Of course, you can uh, go to greasymeal.com and... Uh, dig up on all the history and the music with Greasy Meal and who, who knows maybe down the road you guys might do something there seems to be talk of that right. every six months or so okay so from from the land of uh, Minneapolis where, where bands get back together after a few breaks you, you know there's always hope right there there's always right yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can go to sonsofalmighty.com where uh, Tommy Barbarella works with uh, great hosting musicians Michael B, Sonny Thompson, and Jeff Lee Johnson, and Julius Collins. So uh, you know a lot, a lot of stuff out there, and you've got some great production projects going coming along. There's also a, a website for Ronnie Lowe. Oh, that's right, I was on there. RonnieLowe.com, and there's some little snippets on there of, of some of the new material. And people can email you from that website as well, right? I believe so, yeah. Yep. And um, wanted also to ask... Movable Feast website. That's, that's right. Movable Feast, the record should drop. Any any uh, word on when? Um, it'll probably be the end of March. Okay. Uh, probably April 1st. So and that's movable-feast.com. I think the website might currently be down, but that'll be up uh, when we get closer to the release for sure. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, before we, we close out and play a couple tracks you, you wrote, uh, the collaboration with Esther Godinez, how did that come about? Oh, we had, we just had been talking about it for quite a while. Cause, uh, we've done a lot of gigs together and, uh, I was really, I was really wanting to do a project like, um, uh, Fabel Gilberto. Oh yeah, she's in New York this week. Really? Yeah. That's great, great. 
great stuff. Her, her record came out like a year and a half, maybe two years ago now. It was just my absolute favorite record of the year. I listened to it nonstop um, and really wanted to do something like that, combining traditional Brazilian melodies and chords um, and rhythms with more modern uh, production technology. And that's, that's what we try to do. And uh, it was really hard with our schedules, but we managed to get one, one tune done. So we're going to listen to the track. Tommy Barbarell collaborated with Esther Godinez called La Ultima Canción. It's on the Unsigned Twin Cities project uh, produced by Jackie Thompson. And then we'll follow it up. I got, I got to end with uh, one of my favorites from Greasy Meal CD, uh, Visualized World, Old Soul Cafe, which you wrote. 